let's cultivate our motivation and really feel the the gratitude and appreciation for having the life we do and the opportunities to learn and practice the Dharma and reminding ourselves that everything that appears to us is simply an appearance it's not anything real and solid and so we shouldn't get so caught up in the appearances of this life but if we can look beyond this life and see what's really important then wishing to live a life of ethical conduct and on that basis to develop concentration, wisdom and bodhicitta makes a lot of sense and so let's develop a determination to do that in order to attain full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings talking a little bit about the, um, the candidates for coordination and I just wanted to talk a little bit now about the candidate the qualities of the uh, preceptor who gives the ordination um, so first of all it should be somebody who doesn't accept too many disciples um, because then it becomes hard to train all of them and take care of them and the, um, the, if you ordain somebody then you are responsible for providing them not only with dharma teachings but taking care that they receive uh, food, clothing, medicine and shelter as well so in the Tibetan tradition this part isn't adhered to very much so, you know, so many people, or at least westerners, ordain and then they are expected to take care of themselves afterwards so, but actually according to the Maya um, the person who ordains you should take care of you and then you should be in, take dependence upon that person or if you not upon that person then they send you to somebody else who, who then assumes that responsibility and takes makes sure you have food and clothing and shelter and dharma teachings um, and then uh, it should be uh, somebody who instructs the disciples to take dependence so saying like in the case of the nuns they usually have the two year probationary ordination and then two years of dependence after full ordination and the monks have five years of dependence after their full ordination um, the preceptor should be somebody who's permitted by the Sangha to give the full ordination because actually um, when you ordain the Sangha is admitting you as a member of the community and so it's the whole Sangha that's performing the ceremony so the preceptor can't just kind of go out and do their own trip it's a Sangha decision and it's a, a Sangha act and then in the uh, case of the nuns the 
preceptor, the dictionary preceptor needs to have been ordained 12 years. Uh, for the monks, the preceptor needs to have been ordained 10 years. And then the um, ordination procedure should be a valid one, a legal one. So there's all sorts of things set out in uh, the Vinaya about what constitutes a, a legal ordination. And this is part of the whole discussion about reinstituting the big the in the ordination now and the Tibetan tradition. Um, it seems to me like the main criteria of the whole thing is that the Sangha is in harmony and in agreement you know, and that the Buddha instituted all these different procedures to facilitate the ordination not as Bhikkhu Bodhi pointed out to prevent the ordination but to facilitate it and by having a method to do it then it makes sure that the Sangha is in agreement and people just don't go out and do their own trip and ordain the other in whichever way you know they want to okay so the candidate has to ask permission um, from from their teacher to ordain and then the teacher has to inform the assembly that she wishes to accept the applicant as a disciple and then the assembly should agree okay and then uh, the candidate should have received the Shramanerika uh, ordination, the novice ordination, and in the case of the nuns, also the uh, Shikshamana ordination for two years. And then in the uh, case of the monks, they receive ordination from the Bhikshu Sangha alone. In the case of the nuns, it's a dual ordination from the Bhikshunis and then from the pictures. Although there was a subset, you know, uh, there were periods of time in China where just the pictures alone gave the ordination, and that was still considered valid in the Dhammakataka tradition. And then the candidate has to be questioned about the, both the major and the minor hindrances that we talked about um, yesterday, you know, that could prevent somebody from being ordained. And then there's a former formal act of the Sangha. It's a term called, term called the Sangha Karma, because karma means act or action. So it's a formal action of the Sangha, and it consists of an announcement um, and then a proclamation repeated three times. So what happens is in the way the Sangha makes uh, decisions, usually there's a lot of discussion about things beforehand, and then when it's when it seems like everybody's in agreement then you have this formal procedure in which there's an announcement you know saying you know we're going to do this and then it's repeated a certain number of times and if nobody objects during the, that those times that it's being repeated then it's considered a formal action so in this particular one it's, you know, one announcement and then it's repeated three times. It's proclaimed three times, you know. And, and then if everybody remains silent, because that's how you, you show your consent, then it becomes a, an action of the Sangha and everybody's agreed to it. And once the Sangha has agreed to something, then it should not be brought up again and, you know, dug up and rehashed and blah, 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 blah. In other words, 
if, if anybody has any concerns, they need to be worked out beforehand. And then the, the decision is made, it's consensus, so everybody agrees. And then if you participate in that consensus, then don't bring it up and, you know, make a big commotion later on. So uh, there's different things that often when you do these kind of sangha acts, it asks, is everybody who is here, here in, in, in there for the meeting? And if somebody is not there, have they uh, given their consent to follow what the Sangha decides. Okay? So there's um, a large boundary, usually around a monastery, and all the, the monastics amongst the nuns living within there. Okay? If there's a Sangha karma, you know, that it's, it's an important one, they all have to come. And you can't just say, I don't feel like coming, or that I find meetings boring, or I'd much rather read a book, or something like that. If it's a formal meeting, then everybody has to come. And I think that this is really wise, because that way you avoid the whole thing of somebody saying, oh, I didn't know there was a meeting, and I really don't agree with what you decided, or I thought about it later, and I don't agree, or you know, you know what happens often in groups? So everybody has to go, and if somebody isn't there, that person must have told another member of the Sangha, I can't come because I'm sick, because I'm doing work for the Sangha. In other words, there has to be quite a good reason for not attending. Yeah? And you and when you explain that to the other person who reports to the community for you, then you also give your consent to follow along with whatever decision the Sangha makes. So in other words, if, this is, if you know they're going to be deciding something that's really important, you get yourself there, you know, and you participate and, and don't just complain later, okay? And, um, and so then you get into the whole thing of consensus. And then, you know, what does consensus mean? Well, everybody agrees. Well, what happens if there's some people who really don't agree? Well, then, then those people have to see is this something that I disagree with so intensely that I think it's really the wrong, absolutely wrong thing to do, in which case I'm going to keep up my disagreement? Or is it just something where I think there's a difference of opinions, but I can actually live with what the majority is deciding? And in that case, then you go along with it and you keep silent when they ask for it. Okay? Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing when you do things on consensus because on one hand you could get somebody who's very stubborn who says no I absolutely refuse for the inside of the building to be painted white I want it pink you know or something like that or you know somebody who's like belligerent and stubborn or um, you know you could get somebody who just kind of acquiesces too soon and then regrets it later but it's also a challenge to each of us to look in our own minds about if, if the majority of the group is going in one direction, why are we hanging back? Is it because we really think this is a terrible decision? Or is it more because personal preference or some kind of bias or something like that? Yeah. But uh, 
all the the bhikshunis or bhikshus, you know, participate in the discussion. And usually in monasteries, they'll have another discussion in which all the novices and other people discuss too, if it's something that pertains to them. But it's only the fully ordained people that actually make the decision. And the reason for that is that unless you've been fully ordained, you don't really understand what ordained life is about. And, you know, I really saw this when I, when I lived in France because we kind of were in a position where anybody who wanted to come stay with us, we had to admit. And so all these people were coming and some of them were new, they hadn't, hadn't had any training, they didn't know much about Vanaya, and they had very strong opinions and they moved into the community and I want it this way and I want it that way and I want to change the schedule around so it, we wake up at 9 o'clock in the morning and go to bed at 2 a.m. because that's the way I like to do it. And, and so if you have things, majority rules, and then you have a lot of novices there, you often come up with pretty strange rules, you know, like the TV has to go off at four in the morning, and you know, because people don't understand what ordained life is about. So that's why it's only people who are fully ordained who make the actual decisions for guiding the community in, in important things. You know, now of course, if you divvied up the chores in a different way, and somebody who's not fully ordained has a particular job, you know, when we're in the kitchen, we follow Barbara and Tracy, you know, that kind of thing. But if it's really deciding the direction of the the the, the monastery, the direction of the sangha, how you're going to live together as a community and cultivate, then it it really has to be the people who have who have training who make the decisions and so that's a, an important quality when you come into a community to go in with the mind of I'm coming here in order to be trained not I'm coming here in order to make it the way I want it to be <laughs> yeah because wherever we go we're not going to like the schedule yeah guaranteed wherever you go to live whatever community you are not going to like the schedule yeah. Whatever job you have, you're not going to like the schedule. You're going to want, you know, you want breakfast five minutes later, or you want ten minutes more on the lunch break, or whatever it is. And so a community can get so bogged down if every time a new person joins, you have to revisit these same things. Yeah. So it's, it's important when we're coming in to say, well, I'm coming in to be trained. Yeah. And part of my training is, you know, I'm still thinking for myself, but I also have to subdue this mind that says I want things done my way. Yeah, and everybody has to listen to my ideas. And sometimes we have very good ideas and we really need to share them. And it's important for the benefit of the whole community that even if we're new that we share our ideas. Because if you have expertise in a certain field or whatever, or you have experience, or even you just have ideas, it's good to share them. But then we have to recognize that, you know, it's the people who who are the stable members of the community who are the seniors who are going to make the decision. And I had such a good experience with this when I was in Taiwan in 86 for taking my full ordination. Because we were, I think, 
over 500 people, maybe 550 people. There were two of us Westerners, two English speakers, uh, everybody else. And um, with so many people, you know, you had to file into the meditation hall in a certain way, and you had to file out in a certain way, and then you had to file from the meditation hall into the the um, the classroom, which was the lunchroom. But we used it as a classroom, and you know, because you couldn't have 550 people cramming through the doors at one time, scattering their shoes every which way. You know, it just doesn't work. Um, so it, we had to file into the main hall, and then from there into into the, the auditorium. And I just thought this took far too much time, and it was wasting time. You know, I, I wasn't thinking what could I do, be doing with my mind in this time. You know, my body has to do this thing. What could I be doing with my mind? Instead, I was thinking, I don't like doing this. I want to go there and have it start and not take so much time. And so, of course, I had a better idea of how to get everybody into the the auditorium for the teachings. And they didn't want to hear it. You know, my stupendous, wonderful idea that would save everybody ten minutes every day, they didn't want to hear and uh, I mean, aside from the fact that I didn't speak Chinese and they didn't speak English, but it was a really good experience for me because it was like, oh yeah, children, you know, you came here to learn from them. And you came here to be trained. You didn't come here to organize it so that it suits you. Yeah, so it was a very, very um, good teaching for me. Yeah. As many of us like to organize everything so that it suits us, and things are done in the way that we think they should be done. And um, during that time, I mean, I saw people being—they were quite severely disciplined, you know, when they broke rules. Um, uh, people who, you know, sometimes relatives would come to visit, and they were allowed a certain period of time to visit with their relatives. But if they stayed beyond that time or cut something, and so there were some people who did that, then they had to kneel in front of, you know, the altar and everybody standing there. And they got reprimanded and they had to kneel there for the, um, the for as one incense, you know, kind of burned all the way to the bottom. Yeah. And then there was another time I was just so horrified because I didn't know what was going on. But there was one nun, they made her kneel down, and then they slapped her face. And I'm going, whoa, what's going on here? And then I found out later, you know, because I didn't speak Chinese, I didn't know what was going on, that she had criticized her teacher. And, you know, and they said, look, you know, if you're ordaining, you have to take dependence on somebody, and you can't have that kind of attitude. And so they, they disciplined her quite strongly, you know. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's coming in with the idea of, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to train my mind because my mind is out of control. Hmm? Okay. Of course, you know, if there's something completely crazy going on in the community, then you have to speak up and say something, you know, clearly, yeah. Okay. Um, 
Okay, so the candidate must be questioned about the major and minor hindrances. The formal act of the karma, of the sangha karma, has to be done properly to see if anybody disagrees with it. Um, the candidate is then asked if he or she can observe the precepts and they must respond positively. And then the method of procuring and using the four resources or the four requisites for for living, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. That needs to be explained. And then the ordination um, procedure, including the general features of the, the vow. Another word has to be explained. In other words, you, they usually go through your root vows so that you make very clear you know what the root, the root precepts are. Because if you break a root precept, from the root with all the factors complete then you're finished and you're expelled from the Sangha and you can no longer uh, you know live as an ordained being and you can't reordain so that's quite a serious offense to do that so they usually explain that at the beginning okay that's a little bit about the ordination and, and what happens and it's really it's such a powerful experience because you, you know, you get this feeling that ordination started with the Buddha and then it's been given, you know, generation after generation after generation to all these people for, you know, almost 2,600 years. And then we just kind of come along and, and you know, the Sangha accepts us and takes us in and trains us. So it's really something kind of wonderful to do that. Um, so I've been talking a little bit about the levels of ordination. When you the, the novice ordination, um, to take that, I was saying for the full ordination you have to be 20 years old. For the novice ordination, uh, you have to um, be old enough to chase a crow away. So that's about eight years old. Yeah, and so that's why a lot of the little you know, boys and girls at the at the monasteries in India have novice ordination. Sometimes they take what's called rapja, okay, because there's a portion in the ceremony where you um, rapja is like going forth, and um, and but they don't take all all ten precepts of the novice ordination. So usually when the very small kids enter, they take rapture. So they take the five precepts, including celibacy, and then plus the three, what are they called? The three, I don't know what the term for them is. Three something, okay? But one of them is to follow your preceptor, and the second is to wear your robes, and the third is to not wear uh, lay clothes. Okay? So you, you take the five precepts plus those three. Okay? So that's different than the eight precepts that you take as an anagarika. Yeah? So some people in the monasteries take that. Then when they're a little bit older, then they take the ten precepts. So there you have, you know, to abandon killing, stealing, any sexual contact, uh, lying, intoxicants, um, sitting on higher expensive seats or beds, wearing perfumes, garlands, uh, ornaments, or singing, dancing, playing, playing, no, and then singing, dancing, playing music, 
and then wearing perfume then uh, handling money and then um, eating in improper times okay so so those are the ten precepts that you take as a novice and you have to be at least eight years old to take those and the Tibetans I don't know how this happened but they divide them subdivide them into 36 and I have I've never been able to get an uh, an explanation for how or why they did that because none of the other uh, Vinaya traditions do that and when you take the ordination it says very clearly that you're taking the ten precepts so I don't know how it was that you know maybe one of the Indian Vinaya masters or somebody did that divided it into 36 for clarity okay um so you know you usually stay as a novice for you know for a short period of time the purpose of the novice ordination is to get you familiar with the life of a sangha uh, if, if you are already an adult and then you ordain take the full ordination within a year or two you know a few years after that or if you're a young child it gives you the time to grow up before you actually take the full ordination so this is is one of the the things in the Tibetan tradition I think why and you really see the difference like in the in the countries that have the full ordination for women and the countries that don't you know because uh, you know because the novice ordination is for little kids basically and then if if you always have that level of of ordination you're not actually a full member of the Sangha with the ordination because your whole purpose with the novice ordination your whole purpose with that is to train and then it's when you take Bhikshuri Bhikshuni vows that you actually become a full member of the Sangha you know with all the privileges and responsibilities of of a full member of the Sangha prior to that you're really doing your training and preparation yeah and and so I think it's a, it's a good system that you have some time to, to do the training and preparation you haven't taken all the full vows yet so you try to keep the full vows as best as you can but you, you know you haven't taken all those precepts so it gives you a little bit more leeway and, and so on okay um, in the Catholic tradition, you know, it's quite interesting checking what the Catholics do. And they have sometimes like seven years, a whole seven year thing, before you take your full vows. Because you have postulancy, and then you have novitiate, and, you know, all sorts of different things. So like at Shasta Abbey, they, uh, they have a, they're a postulant for one year. They're, they're a novice for, I think, five or six years. Yeah. And then they, you know, if they if the abbot or abbess thinks they're ready, then they take their their full precepts. Um, yeah. So, but like I said, they don't follow the Vinaya precepts because it's a a Zen tradition. Um, okay. I think that.